Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the Trump administration said it won't renew waivers that let countries buy Iranian oil without facing U.S. sanctions, a move that roiled energy markets and risks upsetting major importers such as China and India. To get the latest on this and all things energy, we welcome John Kilduff. John is founding partner of Again Capital based in New York City. John, thanks so much for joining us. What do you make of this uh, get tough stance by the uh, U.S. administration against Iran? Well, it's certainly a win for the Hawks within the Trump administration, led by uh, NSA Director John Bolton. Uh, this is uh, throwing down the gauntlet, and they, of course, recently designated the Iran Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. So it's uh, it's another step forward towards some kind of confrontation, it would appear, with Iran, which I think is what's making the oil market even more skittish about this decision uh, than it has otherwise would be. This is actually an important point, the the prospect of a, a more severe conflict between Iran and the U.S. and just rising tensions in the Middle East, more so than, say, uh, the lack of Iran's oil supplies in the market. And this is interesting because one question that I had is, couldn't Saudi Arabia offset any missed Iranian production in, in a heartbeat? And wouldn't they be happy to do that? <laughs> Yeah, very much so, Lisa, because the Saudis, as you know, have been dialing back output since uh, November when they actually put more oil in the market, thinking that these waivers would be a, a, a terminated then. Um, so, yes, they have plenty of spare capacity. Uh, we're in a good position that way. And part of the whole global oil market balance has been helped out a lot, of course, by the surge in U.S. production, even though, you know, the oil is a little bit different grade and quality. But um, Russia also has plenty of spare capacity, as does the UAE and Kuwait to a degree. So uh, while we have some problem issues, some problem countries out there like Venezuela, and we're all watching what's happening in Libya, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, the, the ability for the market to be well supplied remains. So, John, are you surprised at all by the timing of this announcement? After all, the U.S. government's kind of apparently getting into the final stretches of trade negotiations with China. And obviously, uh, this announcement today on Iran certainly impacts China as a, uh, a significant importer of that oil. You know, I think the, uh, the, the sort of the, the mechanisms involved with these waivers and, and the sanctions timetable sort of dictated uh, this. I think the administration, of course, I was hoping to have the China trade deal wrapped up by now. They were supposed to be in Mar-a-Lago already. Uh, that has obviously been pushed back. But um, the pushback from China here should be interesting uh, in terms of whether or not they will try to defy uh, the waivers or, or the sanctions. Uh, right now, it appears they will not. I can tell you that we know from, from loading schedules and things of that nature that China's largest refiners are already making plans to pull back from purchasing Iranian oil because they don't want to run afoul uh, of the U.S. Uh, sanctions and the implications for them using the U.S. financial systems. That's what makes these sanctions so effective, by the way. It's sort of a, a you're either with us or against us type of setup yeah. where if you continue to buy Iranian oil, you can't bank with the U.S., you can't do a lot of things with the U.S. 
So I'm looking at WTI currently trading at two point, it's trading at $65.68, 2.6% uh, of a gain versus Thursday's close. And I'm just trying to figure out your point, John, uh, about the conflict, the potential uh, escalated conflict in the Middle East. Uh, this comes, of course, as we heard uh, reports that Iran was going to close the Strait of Hormuz in response to the U.S.'s tightened sanctions. And that, of course, is where uh, about 35 percent of the world's seaborne oil shipments travel through on their way to a variety of countries. So I'm just trying to figure out, you know, is that really the linchpin here? Is that what people are looking at as, as sort of a uh, potential true escalation? What's the next step here? Well, it's, it's hard. It's, there's a lot of arguments why it doesn't really favor Iran to make a move on the Strait of Hormuz and, and to block it. Um, and of course, the United States Navy claims that Iran if Iran does block it, they can unblock it. I've heard that in said in, in congressional testimony verbatim. So that's there. The thing that I look at and you have to look at is that uh, John Bolton, going back to the Bush administration when he served there, wants regime change in Iran. He pushed for it then. There was a time at the latter part of the Bush administration when I was in the oil market where we were all rather convinced that there was going to be a conflict then. It petered out. Things calmed down. The Iraq war you know, was, was sort of a, a blocking mechanism for that. But that is what is in the back of John Bolton's mind. I, I can tell you that as, as, as when I try to game out what's going to happen with the oil prices, that's in the mix. It's not in the forefront. I'm not saying it's something that's going to happen tomorrow, but know that all of these steps are being taken in anticipation of finally confronting Iran at some point, in my view. John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital, joining us on those oil prices rising today uh, to the highest levels since October of last year, at one point rising the most since January on the news that the U.S. was not going to extend waivers to a variety of countries to continue to import uh, oil from Iran once the U.S. withdrew from the nuclear agreement that they had had uh, with that nation. We will update you as we get more Well, it is going to be another busy news week for Tesla investors. There's an investor day today. Uh, their company's reporting earnings later this week. Of course, there's the ongoing uh, SEC case between Elon Musk and the SEC. There's also a recent car fire in China, so plenty to talk about. Let's break it down with Max Chafkin. Max is a feature editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Max, I think where I want to start is probably the most recent news, which is this disagreement with Panasonic, and that's not good because Panasonic provides the lithium batteries for the car, correct? Yeah, yeah. Panasonic is the main partner in Tesla's Gigafactory, which is this enormous, uh, you know, at the time unprecedented uh, scale uh, lithium ion battery factory uh, outside of Reno, Nevada. Um, you know, Panasonic, uh, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago, came out sort of saying they were going to slow down, uh, that there wasn't enough demand for, for, for the investments they were putting in. Elon Musk uh, taking issue with that and um you know basically saying that that they're they're still sort of waiting for more from Panasonic. Um, and again, this comes into this, you know, crazy week where we have earnings coming up on Wednesday, um, as well as this big autonomy uh, day that 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 we should see in a few hours. 
to me, this is a quintessential week that shows how Tesla has lost control over its message, 100%, because Elon Musk uh, is under fire from the SEC for his tweeting habits. They're trying to hold some event where they're going to talk about autonomous driving. No one's expecting much of anything out of that, right? I mean, this is not necessarily uh, going to be something that's a landmark event for them amid all of the hubbub around the fire, around the Panasonic dispute, uh, around the fact that people are expecting their deliveries to be uh, lower at this next earnings report. I I mean, am I characterizing this wrong? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I I think that that is definitely a legitimate, but, you know, point of view. It's a point of view you'll hear um, from from lots and lots of smart Wall Street investors. Um, Tesla has also, you know, in Elon Musk has a a track record of coming out with these kind of wild, you know, really amazing um, product announcements. And and maybe that's what we'll see. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is, and, and, and the reason you might doubt that is because we have this earnings, you know, this earnings thing coming where everyone's expecting kind of not a great quarter. So it kind of feels like a bit of a distraction. Okay, but also, when does he have time to work on this incredible thing? And with what money? Aren't they cutting staff? No, I'm serious. Like, yeah. doesn't that seriously inhibit their ability to create moonshot ideas that are absolutely going to revolutionize the concept of driving? Yeah. So, and we should probably just say what this what this announcement or what we think this announcement is going to be. We we think it's going to be a an announcement basically that that Tesla is very close to having you know full self driving capability, which um, people are going to debate what that means, and also that it's it's planning this you know uh, self driving taxi service, so sort of like Uber or Lyft thing. Um, now, I, I should say uh, first of all, the conventional wisdom in the self driving car world is that you know Google is is wildly ahead of every competitor. That that Tesla isn't anywhere close. Um, the the other piece of conventional wisdom from we hear from uh, executives from like Ford and and the big car companies is that you know self driving cars are like ten years off, not not a year off, like like Elon Musk says. Now the thing is, there there are things about what Tesla's done that are really impressive. I mean, the company has been much faster in terms of getting these kind of pseudo autonomy like services they're you know called ADAS advanced driver assistance services I think um, uh, and 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 getting those out into the public and getting people to kind of um, embrace them and I, and I think when you look at like well what's it going to take to have self-driving cars part of this is a technology thing part of it is a marketing thing and I think if you're if you're a critic you might say well they've they've focused a little bit too much on the marketing they've been saying that they have self full self-driving uh, capabilities but what are those but but marketing is important and getting getting consumers excited about this is is something so so we'll see I mean I, I don't think it's at all clear that I don't think it's clear that Tesla has nothing but I do think there are there are reasons for sure to be skeptical so speaking of being skeptical, where are we with or where's Elon Musk and the company with the SEC right now? It seems I know they were in court last week. Um, seems like something has to move here. Well, they're they're, you know, doing court ordered negotiations to come up with a, a settlement with the SEC. And and one thing that makes this um, this kind of settlement kind of hard to get your head around is because basically for months, uh, Elon Musk and Tesla kind of thumbed. Uh, his nose at, at the SEC in the face of this um, of this agreement they had to to you know vet his tweets and all that stuff. Um, now now the SEC says, well, Elon Musk has violated the settlement, and it's kind of unclear what 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 the what's going to happen. I I assume some sort of fine. I mean, in in theory, the SEC could get Elon Musk removed as CEO. Um, the thing is, that would probably be very bad for Tesla investors, and it's hard to imagine the SEC uh, or sorry, a court, you know, wanting seeing that as a as a um, reasonable outcome. 
Just to give you some perspective, Tesla shares down uh, a little bit more than 3% today as all of this news piles on, even as they prepare to release their autonomous vehicle announcement that we don't know exactly uh, what the substance will be, but there is hope that perhaps it will provide something novel. Max, just real quickly here. Are there are the bulls still strong? I mean, basically, are, are there still this sort of like cadre of bulls that can't be shaken from their Elon Musk faith? Yeah, uh, for, of course. The, the, the bulls... Is it shrinking? Uh, hard to say. I mean, I think, we, you know, we see the stock price going down. I guess we have to say, you know, it's shrinking slightly or something like that. I think that the, the bull case for Tesla's kind of stayed the same. It's, yeah. it's that, you know, they're selling tons of these cars and that they're, they have, you know, a leg up in terms of the next generation of cars, be that electric or autonomous. Max Chafkin, Bloomberg Business Week Features Editor, smart on Tesla, smart in a lot of things. Thank you so much for being with us. One of the biggest uncertainties hanging over markets in 2019 has been the ongoing tensions between U.S. and China over the trade relationship between these two nations. There is a question I have, though, not just will the U.S. and China come to some agreement, but how damaging has this uncertainty been already? And joining us now to talk about that as well as the path forward, David Lovinger. He's senior analyst uh, covering emerging markets for TCW, uh, which manages more than $191 billion. Also, he was a senior coordinator for China at the Treasury Department. Uh, So he has extensive experience with Chinese diplomacy. David, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with this story I I read in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that was talking about how uh, CEOs, the C-suites at companies in the U.S. and China uh, are making big decisions that are not reversible in the short term, regardless of how these trade tensions play out. How does this affect business in the long term? Uh, well, Lisa, first, thanks for uh, having me. You know, I think you kind of nailed one of the most important kind of risks with the trade war. Um, I think more concerning to a lot of investors is not necessarily the tariffs, but the uncertainty about market access. And I have to think, you know, if you're a business and you're thinking about making a major investment, uh, your first instinct is just to hold off until you know what your market access is going to be and what your cost of components is going to be. So, David, it's interesting. I mean, at this stage, do you have a sense of what type of an of agreement can be reached between the U.S. and China re- reading the tea leaves? It would be more of a kind of a headline type of uh, agreement, or do you expect some real substance on some of the key issues? Um, what well, you know, clearly both sides are working hard uh, to get an agreement. And, you know, I still think it looks likely we'll get something uh, by the end of June. But I think, again, you kind of raised the right question. What, you know, what are we going to get? Um, and, you know, there seems to be kind of three factions uh, on the U.S. side. Uh, there's the just buy more stuff faction. There's kind of uh, the U.S. corporate faction that is focusing on market access, uh, protecting intellectual property, and level leveling the playing field with state-owned enterprises. And then there's the uh, China Hawks, and I think you know their goal is to kind of weaken and isolate uh, China. So. Um, 
you know, the big questions is what's going to happen to the tariffs. I think the U.S. wants to retain a lot of the tariffs for leverage. I think unless we see a lot of the tariffs coming off, that's kind of a hard deal uh, for uh, the Chinese uh, to sell back home. And then also kind of what kind of enforcement mechanisms you're going to get. Um, I think if you, you know, if I'm pressed, I'd say we're going to see probably the 10% tariffs on $200 billion of uh, U.S. imports come off, but the 25% on $50, $50 billion in imports stay on. I mean, talk about the uncertainty. We often focus on U.S. companies and the consequences for them. Chinese companies, though, have also very big consequences, and not just in China, but throughout emerging markets in in Asia. Uh, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, have the ongoing trade tensions between the U.S. and China been incredibly harmful for for certain Asian nations other than uh, China, or helpful as supply chains move to, say, Vietnam? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, the big picture is Asia is a region that still depends on trade. So to the extent that the U.S. and Europe and other countries may be turning more protectionist, that's bad for Asia. Uh, This is going to be destabilizing uh, for Asian uh, supply chains. But on the other hand, you're right. I think we will see some more investment going to uh, other Asian economies. And in some ways, it'll just be an acceleration of what's been going on uh, for a number of years now. Wage costs are rising in China. We're already seeing uh, more and more investment going to places like Vietnam. So, David, um, we've seen some data come out over the last uh, several months that the uh economic situation in China is maybe stabilizing a little bit. Um, Does that give them, or to what extent do you think that gives them maybe some leverage in the negotiations, in the trade negotiations? Yeah, so I think kind of the green shoots that we're seeing coming out of China, along with kind of relatively buoyant markets in the U.S., I think stiffen the backs of both sides and, you know, give both sides less of incentive to take a bad deal that would be politically costly at home. And that's, you know, another reason why I'm just cautious about what we're going to see at the, by the end of June. So I, I'm just trying to figure out with all of the uh, sort of doom and gloom around the trade tensions, do you think that they've been worse than people expected or better than people expected so far? What do you give it as far as great? Okay, so I'd say... A year or two ago, if you had told me that there were going to be U.S. tariffs on uh, $250 billion of imports from China, uh, I would have said that would have been kind of a downside tail risk. So I think things are definitely worse than people expected. Keep in mind, we got the tariff war, but whatever happens on the tariff war, we have the tech war. And um, the U.S. is going to continue to go after Chinese tech firms. They're going to tighten controls on exports of technology to China. They're going to tighten controls on Chinese investment in U.S. tech firms. And they're going around the world trying to convince allies and other economies not to use Chinese technology in their telecommunication systems. So, David, the... News we had today about the Iranian oil and the, and the restrictions there. Uh, we saw that China is the biggest uh, importer of Iranian oil. How much is that going to impact maybe the trade negotiations? Are they going to say that, hey, this is not a coincidence? 
Um, so I, I mean, I think the Iran oil is a bit separate from uh, the trade negotiations. But the big takeaway for me, and I was just in Washington uh, for the IMS spring meetings, is do not underestimate the power of the hardliners in China Hawks uh, in Washington. Uh, they have been gaining strength. And I think, you know, the decision uh, over the weekend on Iran reflects that. Absolutely. Uh, David Lovinger, thank you so much. David is a sovereign analyst uh, covering Emerging Markets Group at TCW, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Uh, it's, Lisa, it's interesting. I think the uh, the trade negotiations, the, the real questions, I guess now we're talking about potentially a June uh, timeframe for an announcement. The real question, I think, in, on people's minds is, is it going to be real or is it just going to be a headline? So we'll have to wait and see. It is Earth Day, and there is no better person, Paul, than I can imagine speaking with right now than Brian Deese. He is Global Head of Sustainable Investing for BlackRock, uh, which is very impressive in and of itself. But he also was a senior advisor to U.S. President Barack Obama and served as the Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget. He was a Deputy Director at the National Economic Council, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on and on, but we're not going to because, Brian, I want to get right to it. And it really goes to the heart of what you have experience in. Where does public responsibility leave off and private investing responsibility pick up? In other words, how much can the private sector do if public policies aren't necessarily uh, where they ought to be when it comes to uh, protecting the earth? Well, thanks, Lisa, and it's good to talk on, uh, on, on Earth Day on this subject. Look, I think that um, this is a question that uh, we spent a lot of time in when I uh, used to work in government, uh, and I hear a lot in the private sector, and I think the answer is, um, the answer is decidedly both, that at the end of the day, um, the transition to global transition, the megatrend to transition to a lower carbon economy is going to be driven both by um, public policies and it's also going to be driven by innovation in the private capital markets, everything from early stage innovation in technology up to um, innovations in the ways that the, the capital markets are identifying risks and then allocating capital against it. And so the interaction between those two is, um, is, is, is complicated and nuanced, and it depends on geography or otherwise. But at the end of the day, the answer is a combination of both. So, Brian, ESG investing, let's just spell it out, uh, environmental, sustainability, and governance. Um, it's, we, we know it's becoming increasingly important to investors, even on the Bloomberg terminal, on the FA function, which is one of the most uh, widely uh, hit functions on the terminal. There is a lot of ESG data for each company uh, that Bloomberg has, so it's very important. Talk to us about the data that is available to investors. Is it out there so that they can make informed decisions? Yeah, look, I think the first important thing to reinforce here is that, at least from our perspective, sustainability-related issues are and should be integrated into the way that you think about investing from the perspective of risk and return. So when we think about these sustainability-related issues and the data accompanying them, we're thinking about how can we actually improve long-term investment performance. So this is about value uh, and not just values. That's point number one. Point number two is that 
that the data is um, complicated, insufficient in lots of ways, but has improved dramatically such that there really um, is data out there to measure these risks and these opportunities in a more granular way. Um, and we're in, it's Earth Day today. We're talking in particular about climate-related risks. And our research has underscored that um, it's not straightforward, uh, but if you actually measure these risks down to the municipal or the asset level, you can develop a much clearer picture of the risks that uh, a structure or a municipality are facing than we, we would have even just a year or two ago. Brian, what's the most effective uh, sustainable investment? In other words, is there something that is sort of a, a sort of a quintessential type of investment if you want to be earth friendly? Well, look, I think the the good news for investors is that um, the, um, the the number of options uh, and the quality of the options to invest sustainably is increasing dramatically. And so, you know, uh, we at BlackRock and uh, across the industry are using the increased data that is out there um, to generate uh, more and easier options. What kind uh, of data are you talking about in terms of emissions or in terms of waste? Sure. So, I mean, you start with you start with basic data like the what companies are disclosing in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. But you also want to look at things like how much um, water are they using, um, where are they, where are those demands um, uh, are they in areas of the country or areas of the world that will be particularly water stressed, uh, and likewise how they manage and process um, uh, their waste. All three of those issues are relevant, and uh, you want to make sure that you have data and integrate that data into um, into an assessment uh, of a company. And then that sounds very um, intensive at an individual company level, but the advances in data and in, um, in, in our investing tools enable us to generate core portfolio building blocks that investors can integrate into their investment strategies that are have a sustainable tilt to them, but still deliver the risk return uh, and the long-term financial outcomes that they are, uh, they're focused on. So, um, so they, there are elements of this that are very complicated because you have to understand how to measure these things at the company level. But the good news is that we're able to generate sustainable investing options that are increasingly uh, simple, straightforward, and the end investor can think about building yep. into in the way that they would their core portfolio. Excellent. Brian Deese, thank you so much for joining us on this Earth Day. Brian is Global Head of Sustainable Investing for BlackRock, joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.